You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 29th day of October, 2011. I would like to welcome everyone back to the podcast and invite you all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find not only previous episodes of this podcast, but articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted over the past four and a half years, and links to other alternative independent media websites like TragedyAndHope.com. And it is my great pleasure to announce to you this week the birth of a brand new Corbett Report media venture, Corbett Report Radio. Yes, that's right. Yours truly, James Corbett, is going to be hosting Corbett Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting every weeknight at 12 a.m. Eastern. That's midnight Eastern time, which is 9 p.m. Pacific, and it's going to be 1 p.m. here in Japan. And I guess you can work out your own time zone if you happen to be in Europe or wherever. Wherever you are in this wide world listening to my voice, uh, I very much welcome you to come and tune into the program. Of course, you will be able to listen live no matter where you are in the world on republicbroadcasting.org. Or if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you can tune into the Republic Broadcasting's very own KHFX 1140 AM, where you can listen to me live on air. So I am very excited and very pleased about this, and I'm very much looking forward to it. The, the exact format and the way it's going to pan out, well, we'll have to see about that. It really depends on a lot of different factors, but I'm assuming there will be uh, times for going over news and information. Of course, times to take your calls and any of your questions, comments, feedback, of course, always appreciated. And also, there's going to be quite a few guests. I've already lined up a few guests for the opening week, although uh, Monday night should be wide open, just uh, just me talking about the program and going over some news. And of course, if you're there and you want to call in, well, please do so. And of course, you'll be able to get the call-in number from republicbroadcasting.org, or if you're listening live, I will be announcing it on the air. So again, that's uh, very exciting news for me, and I'm very much looking forward to this new media venture because it gives me yet another outlet to reach out to people and inform them of issues that really matter, as opposed to the kind of palatable pop pablum that's pushed out to us through the corporate mainstream media. And on that note, I'm very happy to, to be doing this, obviously, and I'm going to be uh, taking the audio of the radio show once it's finished and putting it up on my own website. So I'll be publishing that through the RSS feeds. Whether you're subscribed to the Everything feed or the podcast-only feed, you'll be getting the daily radio show. So, um, I've, again, I'm very much looking forward to this, and I hope you are too. And as always, of course, I can't do this without your support. So once again, your subscriptions and your DVD orders keep this all going and growing and continuing to go as I continue to expend more and more and more and more and more of my life force on this uh, Corbett report, and hopefully it is having an effect. But enough gab for now, let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome, my friends, to episode 206 of the Corbett Report, The Gutenberg Revolutions. A long time ago, in a land far away, there existed a library that contained all of the works known to man at that point. Perhaps that's where we got the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket.
2,000 years ago, this stark, sprawling ruin was probably the most important center for learning in the world. Here, men first figured out the size of the world and the number of stars in the sky. There were laboratories, gardens, a medical school, and over half a million books. The ancient library in Alexandria, Egypt, educated some of the most brilliant minds ever known. These corridors may hold the secrets of centuries of knowledge. The seeds of our present-day culture were sown in these old gallery rooms in Alexandria. Perhaps the most surprising thing about the library at Alexandria is that it lasted for over six centuries. And yet, this may be all that remains. of the library in Alexandria has been called the beginning of modern history. More than just the library, it was the first world research center. For hundreds of years, Alexandria invited dignitaries from around the world to study in its library halls. Resident scholars could live, eat, learn, and work with visitors who brought important new information to Alexandria. Apparently, all that is left of a legendary library is this modern excavation called the Serapeum, a secondary structure built when the original library began to overflow with books and people. The Serapeum exists only to tease us with a glimpse of the library's illustrious past. The amazing thing about the library at Alexandria is that it was the most important place of learning in the ancient world and we don't know where it was or where it is now. We don't know what it looked like. We don't know the details of what books did it have. We don't know everybody who was there. There's more that we don't know than we do know. Yet it was the most important event, perhaps, in the intellectual history of man. Uh, I don't know about you, but I could listen to Mr. Spock all day long. Well extracting a little bit of content from the form in which that was presented, and that was a little hint for later, a little bit of foreshadowing, let's examine what we've just listened to, because I think the reason that the story of the Library of Alexandria resonates so strongly with us is that it represents all that is lost to the ages, all of that incredible learning that had been assembled and which was destroyed and for the historians out there, we don't really know exactly how, when, or why it was destroyed. There are a few different candidates for the time frame in which it was destroyed, and by whom, and in what manner. But suffice it to say, it was destroyed, and that collected learning was lost to the ages. Of course, a great tragedy. And in some ways, great tragedies is what drives the human civilization to continue striving for better and better things. Because one of the things that drives us is to make sure that that type of tragedy never happens again. And for centuries, of course, all that could be done was to attempt to reproduce the Library of Alexandria one painstaking copy of a book at a time. But as technology began to improve, 
things began to change until suddenly, in the 15th century, an invention came along that was so magnificent that it changed the face of human communication forever. Hello. This presentation is about Johann Gutenberg and the invention of printing. Johann Gutenberg is credited with that invention. About 1450, he and his partners began printing their first book, the famous Gutenberg Bible. Gutenberg did not invent most of the parts of the process. He didn't invent the paper, he didn't invent the ink, he didn't invent the printing press, but what he did was put it all together for the first time successfully. Before Gutenberg, books were handwritten and very expensive and only available to the wealthiest of people. After Gutenberg, the world had printing, the craft and the business, and the common man could soon afford books. There was an information explosion without which the Renaissance and the Reformation would not have been possible. Now, no one really knows what the Gutenberg press looked like. The details, the drawings, are all lost in the mist of history. However, we can examine 15th century technology and form an idea of what the process was like and what the press might have been. Originally, Gutenberg's type was cast of lead. First, a metal bar was engraved to form the letter or the shape that the final type would be. This happens to be the letter G. Then, this punch was driven into the end grain of a piece of wood. And now we have a mold which we can wrap out of paper or wood or metal in which we can cast the lead to make the final type. Scholars have long held that the Gutenberg press was based on a wine press. Now, this press has not only pressed grapes, but it has been converted. It has a type box. It has type in it. And the type in those, old, in those days were, were inked by using ink balls like this. You get the ink on the ink balls and you work them until they're right. Ink balls are leather stretched over wool and they have just the right amount of softness and give so that the ink is distributed evenly onto the type. We are printing two pages that can be found in our exhibit. An example from the Gutenberg Bible, a replica of the Gutenberg Bible, and also a page from the first edition of the King James Bible. Now we have type that is inked and we're going to use paper. Gutenberg also printed on vellum which was an animal skin. The paper that was made in his time was made of pure cotton and it was just ground up and put into a soup of cotton with a little bit of glue in there and then through wire strainer to make a nice sheet of paper and was dried we're going to take the paper and the paper holder and put it down on the 
on the type. Now, and we'll press this twice since we are doing two separate pages. We have the, the paper on top of ink type, all this together in a, in a box that's called the coffin in English, and we push this under the press. This press has a wooden screw, and it only has to move a short distance, but it creates great pressure using this bar that will pull around, and it'll put, put great pressure down on that. Um, the platen is square, and it has to be level and flat. When we pull the bar, it takes about 80 pounds of pressure to put 2,000 pounds of pressure down. We're going to do this twice. We'll push this in again. Makes nice noises, doesn't it? Now, hopefully, we've printed a, a nice copy. Pull it out. And this is what every printer hopes to get, a good, clean print. Now we're taking our page out. Isn't that beautiful? On a typical day, we don't really know how fast Gutenberg's process was, but they printed 200 Bibles in five years. Um, this was a great deal of more production than you could get by handwriting because prior to printing, it would take a person approximately two years to write one single Bible. Printing really didn't change over the next 350 years. The presses changed a little bit, metal screws instead of wooden screws and that sort of thing, but the process really didn't change much. Gutenberg's invention changed the world. Without the invention of printing in the 1450s in Germany, there would be no Erasmus, no Luther, no Tyndale, and there'd be no Renaissance or Reformation. Thank you for joining us, and please enjoy the rest of the exhibit. That's right. All it takes is just one marvelously inventive technological leap in order to change the face of the world forever, as I say. And I don't think that it's an overstatement to say that, and I think that the effects of the movable type printing press began to be felt very, very soon. In fact, I think that there is a quite obvious straight line that one can draw from the invention of the movable type printing press in the late 15th century to the beginnings of the Reformation in the 16th century. Would the Reformation, after all, have been possible at all without the popularization of reading itself through the invention of readily available, readily reproducible texts, including, of course, the Bible, which was the first mass-produced text? And of course, what are the social implications of suddenly having people who had for centuries venerated a text that they had, for the most part, not had any personal access to? Of course, literacy was something that was not nece really necessary in a pre-mass publication world, and many people did rely on their local priest or scholar of, uh, of note to 
basically translate the the texts for them or to interpret the texts for them or sometimes obviously they didn't even know what they were listening to when they were in mass and listening to latin and and in many countries had absolutely no idea what was being said or uh, and their understanding of religion itself came from just uh, looking at the the adornments in the cathedral well suddenly they had actual access to the text which they were venerating and how could that not fail to shape the the way in which they perceived their religion so i think again it's quite uh, quite a straight line that one can draw from the invention of the movable type printing press to the reformation and that's just one example of the absolute revolutionary effect of this one simple technological leap now there is a tendency i would say and i am as guilty of this as anyone to elide over the next few hundred years of history and to simply arrive at the invention of the internet and to compare it to the invention of the movable type printing press in the terms of the scale and the scope of the revolutionary changes that it can affect in our society and to present this as an unadulterated good. And I desperately, desperately would like to put together an episode of this podcast like that and to demonstrate that type of historical shift that we're going through right now as the result of this remarkable technology which we now have at our fingertips, which really is putting at a library of Alexandria right there in your own home for you to browse the collected works of mankind at any time and in such a way that decentralized as it is, it will never be burnt down or sacked or destroyed all in one go. Truly, we live in revolutionary times, hence the Gutenberg Revolution did not end. It was not something that happened once and will never happen again. It is something that happens every time we have a remarkable new technology come along to transform the shape of the media through which we communicate. But, as I say, there is a tendency to elide over centuries of history and to simply arrive at the doorstep of the Internet Revolution and to say that it is all good. But I cannot, in all honesty or a good conscience, do that, because, of course, like any technology, this technology, too, is a two-edged sword, and there are definitely downsides to it. But let's listen to a little bit from the other side of the debate. Let's listen to Clay Shirky an American writer who has written extensively on the effects of internet technologies, and someone who appeared in a recent documentary called Breaking the New News. When Gutenberg and his followers perfected movable type, you suddenly could produce much, much, much more material than ever before. So they printed a lot of Bibles, and then all of a sudden Europe had all the Bibles it could use in any given year, something that had never happened before. And so they had this huge amount of excess capacity and no new material that needed to be printed. And the solution they hit on was quite world-changingly dramatic, which is they decided to start printing books that no one had ever read before. We have the word novel to describe novels because the word comes from when novelty itself was new. Right? Almost any book you would want to print in 1400 was a book that had been venerated for a thousand years. Right? By 1500, you've got stuff that is literally hot off the presses. The downside of this is that if you're printing a book that no one has ever read before, maybe no one wants to read it, and there's no good way to know. But you've got to print all the copies in advance to sell them, and if you don't sell them, you're out all the money. And if you do that a couple of times in a row, you're out of business. So all of a sudden, 
the printer whose main responsibility was operating this piece of equipment became the publisher whose responsibility was to decide what should be printed on the printing press in the first place. That accident, we, you know, through, through an enormous number of subsequent kinds of media, films and magazines and books and television and radio, someone had to figure out how to manage the risk of what should we broadcast today, what, what should we show in our movie theater, what should go in this month's magazine, meant that that publisher decides model stayed true for 500 years. Right. It was, a, it was a, a basic fact of the public media environment that you had to have someone willing to bear the risk. And the minute you had a medium where you don't have to spend a lot of money up front in order to have a public voice, a medium like we have today, that accident gets undone. Doesn't, doesn't matter that half a millennium of cultural practice is built up around. I think there's a kind of a glum realization that the accident of the economics of media made the publisher's control of what got said in public, that that accident's done now. And that the competitive landscape doesn't include silence on the part of the amateurs, and it will never include silence on the part of the amateurs again. And the technical change uh, to do that was quite trivial. The cultural ramifications of that change, they were huge because the media landscape we had in the 20th century literally cannot stand the shock of inclusion we're currently living through, where all of a sudden everybody's got a public voice. And we're seeing the social effects of that accident ending. Now, on the face of it, this is, in fact, a good thing. In fact, this is the very reason that you're listening to my voice right now. Without the technologies that have enabled me to spread my voice around the world instantaneously and for next to no cost, there is really no media paradigm that has ever existed in the history of humanity that would have let me do that in the past. Certainly, I was probably not going to make it in any way and in terms of publishing or anything in the old paradigm because I was not uh, someone who was who was involved in that. I was not someone who ever really considered taking up the, uh, the reporting uh, mantle and carrying it. And it's not something that I think I would have ever done if it wasn't for these technologies that have enabled me to, to do this. So really, things like the Corbett Report would have been unthinkable in any previous era of human history. So for that reason alone, I think it's there's one thing that can be said about the Internet, is that it is, it is good insofar as it expands, vastly expands, the realm of possibilities of what we can accomplish as a society in terms of adding voices to the mix. And just as uh, you are now able to hear my voice and... You are probably, if you're listening to this, you're probably just as capable of starting your own podcast or website for, because it requires almost no money whatsoever these days and can be done with the same technologies that you do, you use to actually receive and listen to these, uh, these podcasts. So again, a remarkable situation. But there is a flip side to that debate, isn't there? Because one of the things that that opens up is the specter of limitless information something that really could not have been even contemplated back a thousand years ago before the invention of Gutenberg's movable-type printing press, because when works were copied out laboriously by hand, one by one, well, you better believe they took great care to select those works which were 
worthy of being copied out so laboriously. It was not just that anyone could come along and write a book and have it copied out by uh, the scribes. Obviously, the scribes were interested in copying those works which were known and venerated throughout the ages. So, really, there was a sort of self-selective process by which only those books which were really known, and therefore worthy of being known, were really worthy of being copied. And it did create something of a cyclical nature and something of a static cultural uh, milieu in which only the same types of works were read by generation after generation. And of course, that, that can be stultifying and that can be a bad thing. But then what is the flip side of that? Along comes the movable type printing press and suddenly the mass production of works are not only feasible, but actually economically actually make sense to, to do mass runs of books rather than simply one or two. So suddenly you have the uh, the problem of a proliferation of knowledge. And as Clay Shirky points to in that clip, what that leads to is suddenly you have, well, you have demand for new information, new new books, novels, if you will. So suddenly there's there's an invention of a whole new form. Really, the novel, as we know it, didn't exist until the, really the middle part of the, this uh, previous millennium. So... Uh, again, I think that you can walk, draw a direct line between the d invention of the movable type printing press and the invention of the novel itself, and uh, and many other things as well. And this raises, I think, what will be the central point of today's episode, that it is not just that the technology changes the way in which the information is distributed, it actually begins to change the nature of the information itself. This is a very fine point, and one that needs to be drawn out I think a little bit carefully. So, being a good Canadian boy, let's go back to the Canadian source of uh, all of this type of media reflection. Marshall McLuhan. Television is cool and radio is hot. That's the message, and the medium is Marshall McLuhan. Good evening, uh, and welcome to Monday Conference, uh, which has often been said to be not so hot. When future historians uh, look back on the 20th century, it's almost certain that one of the statements uh, from this uh, era, which they will treasure for posterity, is the medium is the message. Like most of Marshall McLuhan's statements, it's pithy, apparently simple, and provocative to the point of being outrageous. Another of his propositions is that some media are cool and some are hot. Marshall McLuhan studies the media as a way of understanding what it is that makes us live in the way we do, as a way of understanding society itself. He's concerned with all media, but he's best known for his work on the electronic media, particularly radio and television. He sees them as the extension of our central nervous system and argues that they're leading to an electrical retribalization of the West. If there is a Mr. Electric of the 20th century, it's Marshall McLuhan. More formally, he's Professor of English in the University of Toronto, Canada, and Director of the Centre for Culture and Technology there. Among Professor McLuhan's books are The Mechanical Bride, War and Peace in the Global Village, and of course, Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man. Marshall McLuhan has been brought to Australia by the Sydney radio station 2SM, to address a seminar on the commercial broadcasting and music industries. Earlier tonight, Professor McLuhan gave his address, and now he's ready for questions from the audience with us, made up of the participants in the seminar and members of the general public. Well, Professor McLuhan, uh, I think we'd better deal with um, 
the medium is the message before it does go into the ah. 21st century. Uh, when you say the, the medium is the message, does that leave any room at all for criticism of individual, say, television programs? Or content. Um, yes. <clears throat> you see, it doesn't much matter what you say on the telephone. The telephone as a service is a huge environment, and that is the medium. And the environment affects everybody. What you say on the telephone affects very few. And the same with radio or any other medium. What you print is nothing compared to the effect of the printed word. The printed word sets up a paradigm, a structure of awareness, which affects everybody in very, very drastic ways, and it doesn't very much matter what you print as long as you go on with that form of activity. You've said that uh, television promotes illiteracy. I'm wondering whether you think that's a bad thing. Uh, I don't think it promotes illiteracy. I think it creates another form of awareness. Uh, literacy had uh, very strange antecedents, very strange effects on people, and uh, we're only beginning to notice what those effects were now that it tends to be pushed aside. Uh, the uh, literacy uh, as a form of awareness is a, a highly specialist and objective sort of thing. You can stand back and the literate man can stand back objectively and look at situations. The TV person has no objectivity at all. But, but does television, say, promote illiteracy or doesn't it? It tends to uh, create a totally different kind of awareness, which is rather that of involvement. Literacy is objective. TV is subjective, totally involving. In fact, the people who watch a lot of television or listen to a lot of radio say, do, do they read more or read less? Or, or do you, I think or radio people are far more literate than TV people. But... Um, <laughs> no, I, I, this, uh, this is a uh, complementarity of the media. But the, um, I, don't, I personally have avoided making value judgments because I've long ago discovered that value judgments are so personal that it confuses people enormously. Yes, but that's, that is a kind of value judgment in itself, isn't it? And not of a media, but of people. And uh, people are very diversified. It's, long, it's been known for a long time that uh, a reader, for example, the word read, to read, means to guess. Look it up in the big dictionary. The word radan means to guess. And reading is actually an activity of rapid guessing. Because any word, any word has so many meanings, including the word reading, many, many meanings, that... To select one in a context of other words requires very rapid guessing. That's why a good reader tends to be a very quick decision maker. And a, a good reader, a highly literate person, tends to be a good executive because he has to make decisions very fast while reading. Uh, and so the, the very nature of reading uh, calls for quick decisions and guessing. And uh, the, uh, the, that's what the word means, to guess, to write down. The medium is the message. Certainly, I would venture to guess that almost everyone in the audience has heard that dictum at least once. But do we really understand what it means and all of its various implications? Well, probably not. And uh, Marshall McLuhan, I think, is a fascinating thinker and uh, interesting to read. But um, unfortunately, a lot of the audio content available on the net and a lot of the videos that are available on the net uh, on his work are um, avant-garde, experimental, cut-up type uh, um, 
things that are meant to prove, you know, medium is the message type type ideas. And uh, ultimately, it ends up being gobbledygook that is completely useless for our purposes. So um, until someone comes up with some just really great uh, documentaries or uh, firsthand primary source material of Marshall McLuhan talking in a normal way, and there are a few of those, but not for suiting our purposes today. But until such time as that happens, let's go to another source. And today we're going to pick things up from the uh, indispensable Peace Revolution podcast, which of course I've mentioned numerous times on this podcast as a great source of information. Information. And uh, way back in April of this year, they released an episode 25 of their podcast, A History of Media in America, Education for Your Edification. And that podcast has stuck with me for a long, long time. In fact, I still remember where I was and what I was doing as I was listening to that podcast, because it's one of those that really, really excited me intellectually and blew my mind. And the thing that was so exciting about it was this excerpt from Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. I use the word conversation metaphorically to refer not only to speech, but to all techniques and technologies that permit people of a particular culture to exchange messages. In this sense, all culture is a conversation, or more precisely, a corporation of conversations, conducted in a variety of symbolic modes. Our attention here is on how forms of public discourse regulate and even dictate what kind of content can issue from such forms. To take a simple example of what this means, consider the primitive technology of smoke signals. While I do not know exactly what content was once carried in the smoke signals of American Indians, I can safely guess that it did not include philosophical argument. Puffs of smoke are insufficiently complex to express ideas on the nature of existence, and even if they were not, a Cherokee philosopher would run short of either wood or blankets long before he reached his second axiom. You cannot use smoke to do philosophy. Its form excludes the content. To take an example closer to home, as I suggested earlier, it is implausible to imagine that anyone like our 27th president, the multi-chinned 300-pound William Howard Taft, could be put forward as a presidential candidate in today's world. The shape of a man's body is largely irrelevant to the shape of his ideas when he is addressing a public in writing or on the radio, or, for that matter, in smoke signals. But it is quite relevant on television. The grossness of a 300-pound image, even a talking one, would easily overwhelm any logical or spiritual subtleties conveyed by speech. For on television, discourse is conducted largely through visual imagery, which is to say that television gives us a conversation in images, not words. The emergence of the image manager in the political arena and the concomitant decline of the speechwriter attest to the fact that television demands a different kind of content from other media. You cannot do political philosophy on television. Its form works against the content. To give still another example, one of more complexity, the information, the content, or if you will, the stuff that makes up what is called the news of the day, did not exist, could not exist, in a world that lacked the media to give it expression. I do not mean that things like fires, wars, murders, and love affairs did not ever and always happen in places all over the world. I mean that lacking a technology to advertise them, people could not attend to them, could not include them in their daily business. Such information simply could not exist as part of the content of culture. This idea that there is a content called the news of the day was entirely created by the telegraph and since amplified by newer media which made it possible to move decontextualized information over vast spaces at incredible speed. The news of the day is a figment of our technological imagination. It is, quite precisely, a media event. 
We attend to fragments of events from all over the world because we have multiple media whose forms are well-suited to fragmented conversation. Cultures without speed-of-light media, let us say cultures in which smoke signals are the most efficient space-conquering tool available, do not have news of the day. Without a medium to create its form, the news of the day does not exist. To say it then, as plainly as I can, this book is an inquiry into and a lamentation about the most significant American cultural fact of the second half of the twentieth century, the decline of the age of typography and the ascendancy of the age of television. This changeover has dramatically and irreversibly shifted the content and meaning of public discourse, since two media so vastly different cannot accommodate the same ideas. As the influence of print wanes, the content of politics, religion, education, and anything else that comprises public business must change and be recast in terms that are most suitable to television. If all of this sounds suspiciously like Marshall McLuhan's aphorism, the medium is the message, I will not disavow the association, although it is fashionable to do so among respectable scholars, who, were it not for McLuhan, would today be mute. I met McLuhan thirty years ago when I was a graduate student and he an unknown English professor. I believed then, as I believe now, that he spoke in the tradition of Orwell and Huxley, that is, as a prophesier, and I have remained steadfast to his teaching that the clearest way to see through a culture is to attend to its tools for conversation. I might add that my interest in this point of view was first stirred by a prophet far more formidable than McLuhan, more ancient than Plato. In studying the Bible as a young man, I found intimations of the idea that forms of media favor particular kinds of content and therefore are capable of taking command of a culture. I refer specifically to the Decalogue, the second commandment of which prohibits the Israelites from making concrete images of anything. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water beneath the earth. I wondered then, as so many others have, as to why the God of these people would have included instructions on how they were to symbolize or not symbolize their experience. It is a strange injunction to include as part of an ethical system, unless its author assumed a connection between forms of human communication and the quality of a culture. We may hazard a guess that a people who are being asked to embrace an abstract universal deity would be rendered unfit to do so by the habit of drawing pictures or making statues or depicting their ideas in any concrete iconographic forms. The God of the Jews was to exist in the Word and through the Word, an unprecedented conception requiring the highest order of abstract thinking. Iconography thus became blasphemy, so that a new kind of God could enter a culture. People like ourselves who are in the process of converting their culture from word-centered to image-centered might profit by reflecting on this mosaic injunction. But even if I am wrong in these conjectures, it is, I believe, a wise and particularly relevant supposition that the media of communication available to a culture are a dominant influence on the formation of the culture's intellectual and social preoccupations. Speech, of course, is the primal and indispensable medium. It made us human, keeps us human, and, in fact, defines what human means. This is not to say that if there were no other means of communication, all humans would find it equally convenient to speak about the same things in the same way. We know enough about language to understand that variations in the structures of languages will result in variations in what may be called worldview. How people think about time and space and about things and processes will be greatly influenced by the grammatical features of their language. We dare not suppose, therefore, that all human minds are unanimous in understanding how the world is put together. But how much more divergence there is in worldview among different cultures can be imagined when we consider the great number and variety of tools for conversation that go beyond speech. 
for although culture is a creation of speech, it is recreated anew by every medium of communication, from painting to hieroglyphs to the alphabet to television. Each medium, like language itself, makes possible a unique mode of discourse by providing a new orientation for thought, for expression, for sensibility, which, of course, is what McLuhan meant in saying, the medium is the message. His aphorism, however, is in need of amendment, because as it stands, it may lead one to confuse a message with a metaphor. A message denotes a specific, concrete statement about the world. But the forms of our media, including the symbols through which they permit conversation, do not make such statements. They are rather like metaphors, working by unobtrusive but powerful implication to enforce their special definitions of reality. Whether we are experiencing the world through the lens of speech or the printed word or the television camera, our media metaphors classify the world for us, sequence it, frame it, enlarge it, reduce it, color it, argue a case for what the world is like. As Ernst Cassirer remarked, physical reality seems to recede in proportion as man's symbolic activity advances. Instead of dealing with the things themselves, man is, in a sense, constantly conversing with himself. He has so enveloped himself in linguistic forms, in artistic images, in mythical symbols or religious rites, that he cannot see or know anything except by the interposition of an artificial medium. What is peculiar about such interpositions of media is that their role in directing what we will see or know is so rarely noticed. A person who reads a book or who watches television or who glances at his watch is not usually interested in how his mind is organized and controlled by these events, still less in what idea of the world is suggested by a book, television, or a watch. But there are men and women who have noticed these things, especially in our own times. Lewis Mumford, for example, has been one of our great noticers. He is not the sort of man who looks at a clock merely to see what time it is. Not that he lacks interest in the content of clocks, which is of concern to everyone from moment to moment, but he is far more interested in how a clock creates the idea of moment to moment. He attends to the philosophy of clocks, to clocks as metaphor, about which our education has had little to say, and clockmakers nothing at all. The clock, Mumford has concluded, is a piece of power machinery whose product is seconds and minutes. In manufacturing such a product, the clock has the effect of disassociating time from human events and thus nourishes the belief in an independent world of mathematically measurable sequences. Moment to moment, it turns out, is not God's conception or nature's. It is man conversing with himself about and through a piece of machinery he created. In Mumford's great book, Techniques and Civilization, he shows how, beginning in the 14th century, the clock made us into timekeepers, and then time savers, and now time servers. In the process, we have learned irreverence toward the sun and the seasons, for in a world made up of seconds and minutes, the authority of nature is superseded. Indeed, as Mumford points out, with the invention of the clock, eternity ceased to serve as the measure and focus of human events, and thus, though few would have imagined the connection, the inexorable ticking of the clock may have had more to do with the weakening of God's supremacy than all the treatises produced by the philosophers of the Enlightenment. That is to say, the clock introduced a new form of conversation between man and God, in which God appears to have been the loser. Perhaps Moses should have included another commandment. Thou shalt not make mechanical representations of time. Well, I don't know about you, but certainly I find that to be absolutely fascinating stuff. And once again, I would invite you to go and check out the entirety of that podcast, um, which includes not only that Neil Postman clip, but other information besides to further explore the concepts there. 
But let's just use that as the basis for what we're thinking about today, which is this idea, well, if the medium is the message, and if the medium actually shapes the type of content that can be transmitted or even thought within that medium, well, what does that say about where we are and what type of medium the internet is? Well, I would say for for starters, I would say perhaps we should be careful to differentiate the different types of mediums that the, the internet represents, because... There are different devices through which we access the internet. The internet itself is is not necessarily a monolithic thing when it comes to dissemination of information. There are many different ways that that information is disseminated on the internet, and in some ways the internet encapsulates a lot of the previous types of mediums that have existed in the past. For example, obviously, we are listening to audio right now, but obviously I also have videos in which I put out information, and obviously there is also text, which is a large part of the information that's available for access on the internet, and your ability to access those different types of media at this point probably depend on your bandwidth that you have available and the types of devices that you're using to access them and where and when you're listening or watching or reading the content. Uh, if you're at work, perhaps you're listening to this on your headphones through your iDevice, or if you're at home, perhaps you're listening on a desktop, or perhaps you're watching, uh, browsing YouTube and checking email and doing other things besides while you're doing it. And uh, I think each s- setup obviously encapsulates a, a different way of it disseminating and understanding and intaking information. So it's important to to differentiate that. So I think the internet, for one thing, is not a a single media. It is a multivariate media, which really represents something perhaps unique in in the course of human history. But having said that, certainly I think there are certain things that we can say about the types of communication that so far at least have coalesced uh, through uh, internet-enabled media. And Perhaps it's not a happy tale. For example, listeners to episode 114 of this podcast, Newspeak is Double Plus on Good, might uh, remember that, uh, that rather disturbing story, which we took from Blacklisted News, about teenagers only use 800 different words a day. And the, uh, the drastic reduction in vocabulary and diction and uh, knowledge of grammar that has taken place, or at least seems to be taking place right now, and one would seemingly uh, place the burden of that on new forms of technology that uh, have greatly reduced our ability to communicate with each other in normal, everyday English, including, of course, the dreaded text-speak, which has arisen because the of the limitations of punching uh, long uh, communication into a tiny keyboard on a cell phone, for example. One would hope, hope, desperately hope, that that is really just a, a transient phenomenon that has only existed because of the, the rather daunting limitations of the technology that as they have existed so far. But as we move more and more into a universe where all f- forms of different communication will be much easier to do, um, even on small devices like an iPhone or an iPad, One would imagine that that type of uh, text-speak thing will be an antiquated thing of the past, even within a few years, or one would desperately hope, but perhaps not. Perhaps that really is part of internet culture in a way that uh, will not easily disappear. One also has to wonder at the phenomenon of something like Twitter, because honestly, truly, I cannot, for the life of me, understand why anyone uses Twitter at all. That is one of the big reasons why I don't have Twitter. Well, actually, I do. I have at Fukushima update, but that's really just set up to tweet out anytime I do an update to the website, and it really says... uh 
I, I don't use it to say anything because I can't, un, I can't even imagine what one, someone would want to say in 140 characters or less. I, I can't imagine it would be of any value to anyone, but perhaps that's because I'm thinking more in terms of big, long podcasts or, or video productions or articles in which you can actually communicate something of substance. I just don't see what of substance can possibly be communicated in 140 words or for 140 characters, sorry. And, uh, and that perhaps that, uh, I mean, I'm not to, not to say that there couldn't be something done in that medium, which is, which is wonderful or brilliant or, or great. But, uh, but just that, that type of limitation is, it seems to me just ridiculous in this day and age of, of free communication and instantaneously anywhere in the world. And, and podcasting and all of these wonderful technologies to limit yourself to 140 characters for no good reason just seems bizarre to me. But perhaps I'm just not a youngin and I just don't get what the youngins are doing these days. Um, but having said that, again, we see that all of these different media are really affecting the ways in which we communicate and even the types of things that we communicate. Of course, as Clay Shirky mentioned, now that we have amateurs, quote unquote, who are who have as much access to the the systems of distribution as the the big players, we certainly do see a shift in the type of content that's being produced these days. And you see things like the Corbett Report that are possible because of that. You also see a lot of other things besides. And we risk, of course, coming into the exact opposite problem of the loss of the Library of Alexandria, which represented the, the loss of all of that great knowledge which should have existed for the ages and should have been carefully preserved, but now is lost forever. Well, now we have the exact opposite problem, which is a proliferation of knowledge about everything, an understanding of everything. In fact, too much information about everything, not just in terms of people's privacy and the intimate details of their day-to-day -day lives, as is often bemoaned when we talk about social networking, but also just uh, the proliferation of people rambling on about things that they don't know or don't understand or haven't put any thought into. And all of that is preserved for the ages, and it begins to become not a library of Alexandria, but a library of Babel. And if you have not read Jorge Luis Borges's short story about the Library of Babel, I, I demand you to stop listening to this podcast and go read it immediately. Or really anything by Borges, but specifically the Library of Babel is appropriate to our, uh, our conversation today. We are approaching that with uh, the internet. Is it a Library of Alexandria or a Library of Babel? And that, that is one of the fundamental questions that the media of the internet poses as it starts to dictate what the message really is. Well, all of this is very interesting, and as I say, there are many different ways that we can take this, but let's listen to another cautionary note about the type of media that the internet is becoming. We're going to listen to an, the audio of an intriguing clip that I found on YouTube called Prometheus, the Media Revolution. And I must confess that I don't know too much about when or where this this media was created. I don't know who created it, and I don't know for what purpose, but I do find it very interesting as a speculative look into the future of the internet as it continues to develop, and perhaps a cautionary look at that. So let's listen to this, and um, unfortunately the accent might make it difficult for some to understand. You might have to listen a couple of times, or of course you can follow the link from the documentation section to watch the YouTube video itself, and uh, it has subtitles, so it might be a bit easier for you to understand. But at any rate, let's listen to the audio. Man is God. He is everywhere. He is anybody. He knows everything. 
This is the Prometheus New World. It all started with the media revolution, with the internet, at the end of the last century. Everything related to the old media vanished. Gutenberg, copyright, the radio, television, advertisement. The old world reacts. More restrictions for copyright. New laws against unauthorized copies. Napster, the music peer-to-peer company, is sued. At the same time, free internet radio appears. TiVo, the internet television, allows the viewer to avoid commercials. The Wall Street Journal goes online. Google launches Google News. Every day, millions of people read All My News, the biggest online newspaper written by thousands of journalists. Flickr becomes the biggest repository in the history of photos, YouTube for movies. The power of the masses. A new figure emerges, the prosumer, a producer and a consumer of information. Anyone can be a prosumer. The news channels become available on the Internet. Blogs become more influential than the old media. Newspapers are released for free. Wikipedia is the most complete encyclopedia ever. In 2007, Life magazine closes. The New York Times sells its television and declares that the future is digital. BBC follows. In the main cities of the world, people are connected for free. At the corners of the streets, totems print pages from blogs and digital magazines. Millions of people are now getting used to the internet, many virtual worlds. A person can have multiple online identities. Second Life launches the vocal avatar. The old media fight back. A text is added on any screen. Newspapers, radios and televisions are financed by the state. Illegal downloading from the web is punished with years of jail. Around 2011, the tipping point is reached. Advertisement investments are done on the net. The electronic paper is a mass product. Anyone can read anything on plastic paper. In 2015, newspapers and broadcasting television disappear. Digital terrestrial is abandoned. The radio goes on the internet. The media arena is less and less populated. Only the Theranosaurus Rex survives. The net includes and unifies all the content. Google buys Microsoft. Amazon buys Yahoo, thus becoming the world universal content leaders with BBC, CNN and CCTV. The concept of static information, books, articles, images, changes and is transformed into knowledge flow. Advertisement is chosen by the content creators, by the others themselves, and becomes information, comparison, experience. In 2020, Lawrence Lessig, the author of Free Culture, is the new U.S. Secretary of Justice and declares copyright illegal. Devices that replicate the five senses are available in the virtual worlds. Reality could be replicated in single life. Anyone has an AGAV, agent avatar, that finds information, people, places in the virtual worlds. In 2022, Google launches Prometheus, the AGAV standard interface. Amazon creates place, 
a company that replicates reality. You can be on Mars, at the Battle of Waterloo, at the Super Bowl as a person. It's real. In 2027, Second Lives evolves in the spirit. People become who they want and share the memory, the experiences, the feelings. Memory selling becomes normal trading. In 2050, Prometheus buys place and spirit. Virtual life is the biggest market on the planet. Prometheus finances all the space missions to find new words for its customers. The Terrestrial Avatar. Experience is the new reality. Very interesting, and am I the only one who finds that concept of the future very chilling? Because on second viewing of that that uh, video, it becomes apparent to me that it is a bit ambiguous whether that's meant to be a chilling concept of the future or something to look forward to. And uh, although you can't hear it from the audio, obviously, the final image there on the video is the image of the all-seeing eye in the uh, in the triangle, in the capstone of the pyramid, being replaced by a person. So I don't know if that represents people becoming the the force that, that will change the world or whether that just represents the fact that we're being enslaved by the all-seeing eye. And I think both have been posited as different ways in which the internet revolution will play itself out. Well, I don't claim to be able to come to any definitive conclusion on this today. I think, obviously, we are directly in the middle of this flux and thus not really well situated to be able to, to understand where, how it's going to turn out. And in some ways, that's exhilarating. We are living on what is undoubtedly, undoubtedly a revolutionary moment. But as with all revolutionary moments, it's a question of which way the winds of revolution will blow and whether they will blow in our in a direction that favors this, the way our sails are pointing or whether it will blow us into directions we don't want to go. And in some ways, that analogy is perfect because it represents the fact that the winds are what is directing the revolution, not us. And in some ways, if the medium is the message and the Internet is the medium, then it is directing what we say as much as we are. That is a very profound thought and one that I will have to leave you on today as you begin pondering this situation for yourself and hopefully begin spreading this information through the internet, through your blogs or through email or whatever way you use to get this information out to others. It is a fascinating concept to think of how we are really transforming the media landscape and it should also be one that we take with caution as we don't know where this great experiment is going to end up. But at any rate, that's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.